Filmmakers make films, but films make filmmakers. From blockbuster premieres to grindhouse theaters, late night cable to the local video store, there is no greater classroom for aspiring filmmakers than cinema itself. Join your host, Eric Skorzynski, as he dives deep into the minds of legendary directors, producers, actors, and more to discover their biggest influences and to explore the impact their films are leaving behind. This is Film School. Grab your popcorn. Class is about to begin. When you think about some of your favorite films, you tend to think about iconic music. From Star Wars to Jaws to James Bond, a good soundtrack can become as memorable as the movie itself. Today, I'm sitting down with Lucas Cantor. He's a composer, producer, multi-instrumentalist, and speaker. He won two Emmys for the Olympics in 2008 in 2012, and co-produced Lord's cover of Everybody Wants to Rule the World on the Hunger Games Catching Fire soundtrack. He also co-wrote the theme music for Major League Soccer on Fox, and he finished Schubert's Unfinished Symphony with Artificial Intelligence. In addition to that, he's worked in the music department on several different projects, including Star Wars Detours, Spirit Riding Free, Jane the Virgin, Mechanic Resurrection, and Dracula Untold, and so many more. We have an amazing conversation about his influences as a composer, the misconceptions that people have about the industry itself, and how COVID has affected the music industry and given actually some unique opportunities for Lucas to collaborate with some artists that he wouldn't normally get to. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode with Lucas, and if you want to hear more from him, you should definitely check out his podcast, Book Society. You get to hear him really dive deep into some incredible books with some incredible people. But without further ado, let's jump into this episode of Film Schooled with my guest, Lucas Cantor. This show, we talk a lot about people's inspirations, like what made them make the things that they make. And uh, I really want to go back to kind of your early life. And in your TED talk, you you made a statement that music's kind of like a mirror. Like we we resonate with it because we see something in ourselves or in our life reflected in the music. When's the first time you ever heard a piece of music where you felt some kind of visceral emotional reaction to it, response to it? It was probably the music that my aunt Edna uh, used to sort of get me into. So she's like the, my mom is one of 11 children and Edna is like the cool aunt. Not that for all my titis and tios listening to this, you're all cool. I love all of you. But Edna was like the hip one who would show up in a Corvette and, you know, like just, you know, show me all sorts of cool stuff. And so she would get me, um, she got me into like the doors. She got me into the Rolling Stones. She got me oh. into all this, uh, I think Santana, all this kind of, um, you know, 60s, 70s rock that really became the the music of my, of my early childhood and the stuff that I started learning on guitar, Led Zeppelin. Right. And so I think the first time I really had like a, like a, a real connection to a piece of music, it might've been, it might've been Led Zeppelin. It wasn't anything mm. about the lyrics or, you know, the, I mean, you know, the, I don't have a personal connection to like, epic Norse mythology, heavy metal, right? Um, but just the guitar parts and the way that it laid on the guitar really made me sort of feel like, Oh, I could, I could play this instrument. So, right. Um, right. so yeah, it was really, and then I always think of my aunt, she's, you know, she's still with us. They live in Hasbury park and go to music festivals, even though they're, um, you know, probably septuagenarians at this point. Um, hmm. and, uh, and yeah, so that, that music always makes me think of her. And I think that was really my first, like super like emotional connection between like music 
and family and an actual instrument that I'm holding in my hand. Right. And when it came to actually holding an instrument in your hand, was that something that came after that? Or was it something you were already doing, but that kind of pushed you further into like loving music? Yeah, I had started playing guitar just kind of, you know, just as a kid, I thought I would just try it. And right. um, I mean, well, the real story is uh, I was trying to impress a girl. Right. Um, I was 14 and I, I thought that if I could play a song on the guitar, there was this guitar in our like student center area that Emily Sokoloff might think I was really cool. And she was like, you know, the cool hot girl at the um, at the school that everybody wanted to go on a date with. Um, she probably, I'm not in touch with her, but I'm sure she's still cool and very pretty. Um, and she, uh, so I thought like, oh man, I'm going to like pick up this guitar and I learned how to play that Metallica song. It's just like, you know, three open strings, four yeah. open strings. And, uh, you know, when she came in from her free period, I was just sort of playing that. And I thought maybe she would notice me and she, she didn't, but, uh, <laughs> but I got really into the guitar. Um, right. I was like, well, this is pretty cool. Right. Uh, so, so yeah, that was, that was my initial impulse, but then I, you know, I really just, liked it. I enjoyed it. And I think it was when my aunt found out that I was really into it, she started turning me on to all this music. And I think that really kind of set me on the path. Yeah. Like looking at your work and looking at, you know, listening to you on other shows and talking about it, I'm surprised how eclectic you are because there, you mentioned Led Zeppelin, but then you also mentioned bluegrass and jazz. Like have, have you developed that just over the years being, you know, kind of forced due to work to work on different types of instruments and work with different things? Or was it something where from the beginning you were just, if it was good music, you'd check it out? Uh, no, it's, so I'm not that open-minded. I wish I was hmm. like, um, you know, I, I, I mean, I am now, but it's something I've cultivated. So it, right. it's not that I have always been interested in all different kinds of music. It's that I've been lucky enough to be exposed to a lot of different music by people who really uh, know it and love it. And so for me, seeing something, you know, trying to see music through someone else's eyes, like, you know, mm -hmm. you and I might not have the same taste in music and something that you really love might not be something that resonates with me, but hearing how you hear it and why you love it will make me uh, love it or at least appreciate it. Right. Um, and I think country is a great example. Like there's not, there's really not a country song whose lyrics like super resonate with me because it's like a, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of country music is these sort of pastoral images of a never existing past mm. and so i find the i find the imagery of it to be kind of annoying and insulting but it's no more annoying and insulting than a love song um or you know a song from the the american songbook i mean it's like right. it's songs about an idealized past that never existed it's just an idealized past in the case of country music that i was never exposed to as a kid right so that part of it doesn't resonate with me but like the way the care with which the songs are written the the immaculate production of nashville studios uh the ridiculous guitar playing, slide guitar playing, bass playing. It's just, you know, the insane musicianship on all these tracks makes me really be able to sit down and listen to a Hank Williams Jr. album from top to bottom and think like, wow, the maybe the lyrical content in this song is, you know, like if the South would have won, we'd have had it made. It's not a song that I resonate with, but it's right. a song that I can appreciate because it's sure. made to the highest possible quality. And so, um, so yeah, I, I do think I try to hear all music that way now. And I, and I, and I do to some degree. Right. Well, getting into your biggest influences as a, as an artist, as a musician, mm -hmm. I mean, you mentioned uh, George Gershwin, you mentioned Carlo, uh, is it Gesualdo? Gesualdo. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, nailed it. Okay, cool. Yep. Perfect. Um, and uh, you know, what, what was it about them? Cause I mean, 
you know, when I, when I initially posed the question, you know, I was, I wasn't sure what your response would be, but I didn't expect you to go back so far. <laughs> so, um, so I I'm really interested, you know, starting with really hearing Led Zeppelin, hearing this seventies mm-hmm. era music, uh, what was it that pushed you back to more classical, you know, and, and more, uh, more traditional kind of music and composers? Well, um, Eric, I'll be honest, the, you know, so just for the audience, these questions were posed to me via email after I agreed to this podcast. And so I basically just wrote back to you with like music I was thinking about at that particular moment, because mm. I don't really know how to answer the question of what, you know, what inspired you. Cause it's, you know, it's a lot of things. Right. Right. Um, but, uh, but this certainly was an honest answer. Cause that's what was inspiring me at that particular mm. moment when you emailed me. And um, I, my mom is a big fan of opera. She always played, uh, you know, classical music for us growing up. Mm. And uh, I think that I went to sleep listening to Ina Klein and Nach music, Mozart's, uh, the, you know, probably Mozart's most famous piece, which incidentally he wrote like while he was writing Don Giovanni. And I have these visions of Mozart, like writing one with his left hand and one with, his right, hand, one with the other. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, and uh, so uh, I listened to that quite a bit. And that kind of that romantic area, that romantic era stream music, I listened to a lot as a kid. And then I got into, like I said, this sort of seventies rock and roll guitar type stuff. And then I was fortunate to have a really good guitar teacher who turned me on to classical guitar music and just taught me that in order to get really good at an instrument, you had to understand the history of it. And you had to understand Mm -hmm. that not only mentally, but also in your fingers, you know, right. And physically. And so I played a lot of Bach and Bach is sort of the archetype for modern classical music. And uh, so that just got me into that whole, that whole world. And Gaswaldo is someone who I found in jazz college, I went to school uh, as a jazz performance major, and he was this sort of underground, notorious composer because he wrote these insane harmonies, um, like insane by today's standards. And mm. he was writing in the in the 16th century, so he was uh, 15th century, 16th century. Anyway, wh- long time ago. So he was um, he was way ahead of his time uh, harmonically, but he was also um, was also totally insane. He killed his wife, mm. and he killed his daughter. So, or son, we think. And, uh, and the story is more gory than that, but I'm going to go guess this is a G-rated podcast. So he was this uh, crazy person who also wrote music that uh, was so far ahead of its time. It was like if we found an early draft of Thriller in the papers of J.S. Bach. That's how wow. harmonically ahead of his time he was. And people didn't catch up to it really till the 20th century, the wow. 18th, 19th, 20th century. So, um, and this is just a figure who's... Uh, this is one of the the theses of my talk that like he's so fascinating as a human because he was just like kind of a bad guy and a crazy guy who did right. really dark horrible things and then he also wrote uh, this very odd music and you know had one of those facts about him existed without the other i don't think anyone would have remembered him because mm. worse crimes have been forgotten and weirder music has been forgotten but the combination of the two really like he has this sort of perennial every, you know, century or so someone sort of discovers him and he surfaces into the popular consciousness for a minute and then sort of recedes away again. Right. This conversation, I didn't expect to talk about this, but it's something that I'm, I'm curious about. I was actually talking with my wife yesterday and I was talking about, you know, musical genius, any, any artistic genius, you know, and it seems like there is, there's always some type of eccentricity at, at 
the least lowest end of the spectrum and then full-blown insanity, like you mentioned at the other end of the spectrum where, you know, you look at someone like a Van Gogh cutting off his ear or you look at, you know, even modern, we we were talking about, you know, Kanye West and, and, you know, we were talking about how, you know, I I was just like, the guy is an artistic genius. I think, I, I think that he's, he's a very unique thinker and creates really cool. The fact that he can create so many different types of music and visuals and things is, is fascinating. But he also has that strange way of viewing everything that makes him stand out. And I think it's why a lot of people, you know, don't take certain things he does seriously because they don't, they can't look past those more eccentric kind of personality traits and things. Do you think that there is a connection between producing, you know, music that no one else can do and also being just completely wired different? Or do you think that that's, there's no connection there? Yeah, music is patterns, and to some degree, music is a puzzle. And so if Hmm. you don't find more interesting ways to solve the puzzle, then you're just going to be doing the same thing that everybody else is doing, and it's not going to stand out. So Hmm. I think that's probably the simplest explanation. And all of the best musicians I know who are uh, the best composers I know are, to some degree, eccentric, you know, (laughs) some some more than others. Um, But yeah, I think that really is it. Like you're, you know, music has been has been practiced for probably 43,000 years and recorded for at least a thousand. Hmm. And so we've done a lot of things, you know, a lot of what can be done has been done. Um, Even though, even though there may be an infinite amount of what you could do with music, a lot of it has already been done. Sure. And so um, when someone comes along with something that's new and different, it really stands out. And increasingly in order to come up with something new and different, you have to be able to see the world in a new and different way. And I think, you know, I don't know if I'm going to agree with you that Kanye West is a musical genius, but his music, you know, is fantastic. <laughs> sure. You know, it mm. really is. Um, or I guess it's produced at the highest level. I don't, it's unclear to me whether generations from now, people are going to be listening to Kanye West the same way they still listen to Gershwin. But again, yeah. that's a, I have no idea. Yeah. No, I, I and, know. and like, like you've mentioned, you know, in many of your talks, you know, it, it's what people see in it too, you know, and it, it's interesting. And, and I definitely, when you, position like that, you know, will people in, you know, a hundred years be listening to Kanye? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but you know, for, for me, what blows my mind about him is the visual. It's the fact that he works in so many different arenas, fashion, visual art, music, like to be able to function. Cause I can function competently at one or two things, you know, mm-hmm. and to excel in multiple areas is amazing, you know, which is, yeah, which is, which is absolutely amazing. Um, I am curious getting into, uh, you're, you're fascinated by a lot of interesting things. I mean, I've, I've heard you mention that you're interested in ancient, uh, ancient Mesopotamia. I think you mentioned was something you're fascinated <laughs> by. You mentioned that on one of your shows, uh, obviously really fascinated by your, you're an avid reader, things like that. Um, a couple of the people you listed when it came to influences were Joseph Campbell, you mentioned Neil Postman. And when you said the name, I was like, Oh, the guy that did amusing ourselves to death. And then I was <laughs> like, and then I was like, wait, it can't be that. So I was like looking Neil Postman musician. I was like Googling. I was like, no, and then I was like, no, he really right. means Neil Postman. So, <laughs> so how are you influenced by Neil Postman? Because I talk about him. He's one of the people I bring up a lot when we talk about politics or things like that. And I just, am like, if you want to understand debates, if you want to understand the way we broadcast things and the way news works, like you have to read this book. How does Neil Postman play into an influence to you? 
let's uh just for the people who are listening to audio only um eric is currently holding up a copy oh, of yeah. ourselves to death. You're watching there you go again. <laughs> yeah, i literally went to my shelf and i was like what does he see what is this right. what is this yes. thus right. ensuring that we are going to become real life friends um <laughs> so uh yeah what i i i first was introduced to neil postman because i was interested in education mm. and i got interested in education because i had a I'm sure she won't be listening to this, but I won't name her anyway. But I had a roommate who was a uh, teacher in the New York City public school system, and she had just graduated from college and she had no interest in teaching. But there was this program where like you could teach for three years and they pay back your student loans or something like that. Mm. So she became a science teacher and had, like I said, no interest in teaching and was teaching in a school where the kids really needed people who were interested in teaching right. in order to you know, move on and, you know, have fulfilling lives. And so I was, uh, you know, watching this, um, watching this sort of unfold over a school year of like her coming home and hating what she was doing and talking mm. about, you know, how terrible it was. And then just thinking about like what the kids must be going right. through, trying to learn this subject that is baffling from someone who doesn't really know it and doesn't really care about teaching it. And then like, what is that going to do to the rest of their lives? I, I just got, you know, really interested in like, how did, this happened where like this person is teaching these kids. Mm -hmm. um, and so I contacted, I don't know, I contacted, you know, I don't know. I have a habit of just looking people up and reaching out to them. And so, I don't know, I got in touch Same. with some like <laughs> professor of yeah. education and she recommended the end of education to me, which mm -hmm. was Neil Postman's book yeah. about why kids aren't able to get educated and uh, amusing ourselves to death. So, you know, that, and that was sort of the gateway drug to Neil Postman for me. And then amusing ourselves to death is, uh, a really interesting book about, um, I mean, you could probably talk about it better than I can, but it's uh, essentially like talking about the, the current state of affairs. It's, it was written in the 90s about how, you know, the way that we get information is um, is degrading. And, you know, he was worried about this in the 1990s when the degradation was cable television, yeah. you know, and he had no inkling that smartphones were going to exist. Yeah. Uh, but he really nailed some of the societal, you know, system level problems that we currently have, he really predicted pretty accurately, which to me means he's someone who's still worth reading. Right. Yeah. I definitely agree that he's still worth reading. I, I read him for the first time in 2000, I think 14. Um, and I, I was, I forget why I, I was, I was reading someone who also referenced him and, and I was interested in, in the poll quote and went and found the book. Um, which is what I do. Every time I read a book, it bursts like six more because I go to the footnotes and start seeing like, where's that from? It's a and dangerous um, game. yeah. And, and, and reading the book, it's, it's really fascinating. You know, in, in the book, he talks about, you know, again, I'd love to see what he would say about smartphones and social media and things like that. But he talks about, you know, uh, presidential debates, you know, and he talks about, you know, the news changed when they started adding music to make you feel a certain way when uh, there was news, whether it was good or bad. He said when presidential debates started with kind of like fight night music style, you know, like it just, it, it transforms the way that we perceive things. And um, it was one thing when, as, as I thought about it, I was like, okay, well, there's some elements of that I think would probably be interesting to someone who one is a musician because it talks mm -hmm. a lot about the way that we perceive things and how music and design and, and film colors, how we, take in news and information. Um, but then also on the other hand too, like it's just a, it, it speaks a lot to, I think how we process things. Like it just speaks to how we process 
the way that we view things, the way that we communicate. Um, my one of my favorite things in it, speaking to the presidential debates, is when it talks about you know debates used to be three hour debates with cross you know cross checks and cross examinations and Q and A and things like that. And now it's so soundbited where you're not getting a full picture and you're not thinking critically about a certain topic. Um, it's a really, really phenomenal book. And I, I brought it up a lot uh, for certain reasons over the last couple of years. Uh, it keeps coming to mind. And uh, I'm always shocked how many, how few people have read it because um, it is a really, really interesting book. Yeah. He's an um, important thinker. Uh, and he, you know, his, he really did kind of, he really did predict smartphones, not specifically but uh i I think of the there's a section in amusing ourselves to death where he talks about the news saying and now this Mm -hmm. um where you know it's so so it presents uh which sounds like an innocuous phrase that we hear all the time but it presents events as completely unrelated which is not true in most cases and it also um he also talked about how ridiculous it was that they would have sort of slow news days where they would show kittens you know for the last Mm -hmm. two minutes of a broadcast as if you know, the world's news, there wasn't enough news on the entire planet in a day to fill yeah. 22 minutes of broadcast. I mean, regimes rise and fall, you know, yeah. in, in that time period. And there is, uh, there's more than you could possibly report in 24 hours, you know, right. but, um, but the 24 hour news networks run what they think is going to get people's attention. And this is what I, uh, you know, this goes back to what we we're talking about with Kanye. And this is what Postman was, I think, predicting is that, you know, Kanye West is not really, a, is not really any of the things specifically that, you know, he's not really a visual artist. He's not really a Mm. musician. He's not really, I mean, he's all those things, but what he is, is an attention getter. Like his goal is to be an entertainer and the goal of an entertainer, the job of an entertainer is to get and hold your attention. Mm. And so the, and by any means necessary. And, you know, we can see that Kanye is very, very good at that. Uh, Another example would be, or, or I guess a sort of a softer example is like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like, do you want to go see Arnold Schwarzenegger? in um as king lear hmm. you know probably not arnold schwarzenegger is not really an actor in the sense that patrick stewart is an actor you know but arnold schwarzenegger is a fantastic movie star you know i will hmm. see a mo- i will see a movie starring arnold schwarzenegger with no other information because i know right. it's going to be pretty good right you know um and uh and i i think that there's a there's an important distinction between those two things yeah. that is getting lost because of the way that we consume media um, yeah. so yeah, so that's, that's, uh, that's how Neil Postman and Kanye West are related, I guess. <laughs> well, interesting. This is all something I didn't expect when, uh, again, when initially reaching out, it's not something I expected to even come up, but it is, it is interesting. And it is interesting. You know, you're someone who's worked quite a bit in the entertainment industry for lack of a better word. And so it's interesting, you know, it, it, you don't exude someone who works in that space. You're very off the grid. You're very, you know, um, your influences, you know, like, again, mentioning Neil Postman, like that's like, uh, it's a, it's a very interesting perspective and kind of uh, look into your mind and how it, how it operates. Um, I, I am curious on, on the entertainment side, working in media. Now, I mean, you've had a very busy, uh, a bit, very busy career, um, producing a lot of different kinds of music for a lot of different kinds of projects. You've done a lot on the stage with, you know, live orchestras and things like that. You've also done, um, you know, films and shows and things like that. So what drew you in to say, this is a professional trajectory for me, you know, how can I start moving into this? Was it, was it with the intention of going into film television 
Was it, I purely just want to make music and that happened as an afterthought? Like what was the the trajectory there? I'm flattered that it seems like there was some rhyme or reason to how I ended up (laughs) where I was. Um, But no, I, uh, I have been basically, you know, kind of living day to day, Hmm. you know, moment to moment, project to project. And I guess I had this overarching goal of, I've had a few, I've had a few sort of 10 year plan type goals, but they're very vague, like learn to write for orchestra. Mm. You know, that was, that was one, right. You know, learn to work with orchestras. And then in pursuit of that particular goal, I realized very quickly that the only people that are going to pay you to write music for an orchestra are people who are making movies. Um, You know, there's, there's a very small world of classical concert music where you can get grants and get commissions from uh, major orchestras to write pieces, but that uh, I don't write that kind of music. And that's a, that's a whole, you have to really be in that scene in mm. order to sort of rise up in it. And I, I don't yeah. have enough of a passion for that style of right. music to have done that. So, uh, so yeah, so I chose to move to Hollywood and, you know, try to score films and uh, largely that, that worked. And I mean, it worked, you know, like any dream or goal that a genie grants you, it ended up like working in a different way than I could have possibly imagined. Right. Uh, but, um, but unlike, I guess, Aladdin's genie, like, you know, it's not like some perverse thing. I was waiting. I was <laughs> yeah. like, no, it's no, like there, a no, genie, huh? Yeah, there, there's no downside. So not, not the best analogy, but sure. it, it was it, it was like, you know, I really like, I, I couldn't have imagined. I mean, I didn't know that one could do what I do 10 years ago and right. make a living at it. You know, I, I just didn't even know that existed, but I just went from one thing to another. And I always tried to do my best at whatever I was doing. And I tried to be like, you know, if my job was to, you know, I've been a, I've been a PA before I've been a second AD before. And if my job is to like stand here and make sure nobody steps on the cable, then I'll be the best to make sure nobody steps on the cable mm. guy that yeah. you can be that right. day. And as a director, like you, you know, this, and this is probably second nature to you, but it's not intuitive to someone who's coming into the business as a director, what you notice, or right, as a, you know, as a producer or someone who's in the position to elevate and hire people, you notice the people who are doing their job. You don't notice the people who seem awesome and like they might be too good for what they're doing. You notice the people who are just like sitting there doing the job that you assign them, even if it's a menial task. Right. Right. You know, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, and I, I just, I don't, I I probably learned that from my parents, but that has really been, if there's a key, um, if you call my life success and there's a key to it, the key to it is like trying to be present and do the best job at whatever job happens to be your job on that particular day. Sure. Uh, Obviously music is a, is a big passion. Like that's your passion and love when it came to stepping into the world of film and television, was it something where, okay, I want to do music. I want to do this thing. I'll do this in this realm. If that's how I get to make music. Or was there also this mix of like, are you a film TV fan? Like, are were you enjoying that work? Like, were you excited about getting into that world or was it just like, well, I'd love to do this but this is the avenue in which I can make it happen. Uh, I like telling stories and I think I'm a good storyteller. And unlike most people who tell stories for a living, I'm also a good musician. And so I figured like I could combine these two in a unique way. Right. Um, And that that's probably like, you know, I I don't think there's anything I'm going to tell Christopher Nolan about storytelling or filmmaking, but, um, but I think I could contribute musically to something that he's doing. Maybe that he wasn't the best example, but I think there are a lot of people who, you know, like you and like other uh, film directors who do this kind of thing all day, like, you know, you get, it's a whole craft that you've developed that I, I know the basics of, but I do know the specifics of putting music to picture. 
Sure. You know? And so I can like confidently guide you through that process and you can, you know, you can come through with me knowing that like I'm, you're in as safe hands as if you hired a great lighting designer. Like you don't necessarily right. know exactly what they're doing, but you know, it's going to look good at the end. Yeah. You know, well, at, the, at the end of the um, day, it is storytelling. It is another yeah. way of telling a story in a way that many directors and producers can understand, you know, mm-hmm. how does a musician tell stories? So I think for a lot of people, they can tend to view, you know, is, is the music filler for a scene? Is it going to just give a little bit of umph to something, you know, but also, you know, when you, when you listen to music on its own, it's telling its own story and guiding the narrative in a certain way. Um, one of my all time favorite um, special features ever on a, I, and I miss this, what I miss about physical media is, is the lack of special features and behind the scenes <laughs> stuff. But I remember on um it was uh, it was on one of the James Bond movies. Uh, they did this on a couple, but Tomorrow Never Dies, um, David Arnold's score in that. There was an option to watch the movie with all of the dialogue and sound effects removed and just the score. Um, and That's so, awesome. yeah, it was amazing. And and I watched uh, like a total nerd. I, I like watched it with just that. And it's amazing, like seeing that it tells the same exact story, same exact mood, emotions, the beats work the same just with his score. Um, it, it's a really, it was a really fascinating thing. And it, it opened my eyes to the fact like, oh, this is, I mean, you know, like subconsciously, you know, but it really shows you like, oh, this, this is telling the story. This is Do telling you have the story. That disc? Um, I might still, I'm not sure. So I could tell you exactly really which fun, one it is. This would be a really fun experiment. So, um, it would be great to get like, let's say 10 people that have never seen this, this film mm. tomorrow never dies and have five of them watch it with just the score and five of them watch just the production and then give them like a quiz about what it was about and who Let's certain characters up. were. That would be see, interesting. Yeah. See how, see how close they get it. Yeah. It, it was, it was really neat. And it, it is, like I said, it's, it's amazing how through a piece of music you can craft that, you know, um, can you think of any, any film specifically, like as you've stepped into it, because I have to imagine when you're pairing it with a visual, you're thinking slightly differently than, any normal piece of music, you know, are there any composers that you watch and say like, they've nailed this craft? Like they've, I'm sure there's a lot, but that where, yeah. where you watch their films and you go, okay, that is what a composer should be doing when working on a movie. Well, um, a young man named John Williams comes to mind. Who's that? Um, yeah. I don't know if you've heard of him, uh, but he's, uh, I mean, he's widely considered. I don't know if anyone would disagree that he's sort of the apotheosis of the craft. Right. Uh, I mean that his, I, I was watching Jurassic park the other day and I forgot what a great film that is. Yeah. And just his score, just, I mean, just in every moment, it's just, it's just perfect. It, it doesn't tell you what to think, but it really just heightens what's going on. And it's, mm. it, it plays against the great performances or with the great performances and the great direction and all that stuff. And so, yeah, he's, I mean, he's really, he really is the master. He's a living legend. And uh, mm. if you haven't seen him at the Hollywood bowl, you know, we go every year. It's, yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's intense. It's really amazing. Yeah. Um, but there are, uh, uh, Ludwig Gorenson's another one, who, mm. uh, Black Panther, uh, Mandalorian. Yeah. Community, the, the score <laughs> community, it like people sleep on it cause it's a comedy, but it is like, yeah. it's really, really good. Yeah. Um, you know, cause there's a, because it's a comedy, one of the, one of the interesting things about comedy is you really have to do every style. Uh, to make it work and you have to do every style authentically and he is really a master of epic action music and hip-hop and you know sort of uh sentimental guitar music like he really just has it all down and it's all very authentic and so yeah. 
so it's it's no wonder to me that he went from that onto other things because it's such a great calling card. Right. But I think he's really good at it. And there are a million, uh, maybe not a million, but there, there's probably like a thousand really, really, really great film composers in Los Angeles working today on stuff you've heard of, stuff you you know don't really know about, and like things that you don't think about having scored. Like I think most people don't really think about music and television. That yeah. Much. Well, you know? and to be fair, I mean, there's a lot, and and the Mandalorian score blew my mind, like because it was just so. You expect the kind of riff on the Star Wars traditional mm-hmm. themes, and to it's the totally fact that it created thing. a different world entirely. <laughs> yeah. And um, but no, it it is something where I I've been rewatching a lot of old TV lately. I'm not I'm usually more movies, but I've been watching a lot of older TV. And when you go back pre like Sopranos or pre The Wire, like pre where it was like cinema on TV, mm-hmm. you know, be, before that happened, there was like a lot of stock music used to just accentuate something. A lot of shows, if you watch a lot of old, you know, 60s and 70s shows, they'll use the same bits of music in different shows. Like it seemed like an afterthought. And now you're seeing a, you know, some freedom given to artists to add to that element of the show. So you get these Breaking Bad or you get the, you know, with the Mandalorian, like the score on that show is absolutely amazing. Um, They're definitely still working with not a movie budget, but they're, creating incredible pieces of, of art. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if they're working with not a movie budget. I think that, I think that for Mandalorian, he probably had whatever he needed. I mean, it's Disney and it's one of their marquee properties. Sure. So I don't think, and you know, Ludwig, I don't, I don't know Ludwig personally, but you know, I'm sure he's not cheap. Yeah. You know? Right. Um, so I, I don't think that you know, he's an A-list composer. He had won an Oscar by the time they hired him for that. Yeah. So, and you're right that, uh, television has definitely gotten better and has definitely gotten more sophisticated in its use of music. And I think part of that is just, you know, look who's making it now. I mean, you know, you can't imagine Roman Polanski directing a television series, but you know, the next generation, uh, you know, Ron Howard does TV all the time. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, I think there's probably going to be a Christopher Nolan TV show at some point, you know, because like there's just, it's just a new medium. It's, I mean, it's not a new medium, but it's being exploited in a new way. Um, and it's uh, most television today, I think best television is, you know, it's just a 10 hour movie. Yeah. Right. You know, in, in, in 10 reels, right. you know, or yeah. I guess like, you know, 60, 60 reels, yeah. depending on how you break it down. But yeah, um, it's, it's a whole new way of just the respect for that world, you know, and, and you listen to it. I mean, you listen to, you know, you listen to Spielberg, you know, he, who his first work was directing big shows like he directed one or two episodes for like very large shows at the time and that didn't give him any credibility in the film world at all you know like it, it showed he could operate a he could operate on a set a little bit but it's now there's like this equal ground where there's people are going back and forth between the two and it's it's really interesting to me it's, it's interesting to see what it's become and and the fact that you're getting game of thrones and breaking bad and you know all these different shows that have these cinematic qualities to them it's it's really cool i think it's uh largely an effect of the medium um and this is something to bring it back to our friend neil postman that he talks about a lot is that the medium of television i think had the effect of making advertisers and people who are producing television think that audiences were less sophisticated than they actually are Mm -hmm. and when we were able to uh, when we were able to, like HBO, when they were able to really do long-form storytelling where they could you know, the, do a season of television without the traditional model of 
okay, you do one episode and if that goes well, we'll fund you for another one where they could just say, all right, you're doing 10 episodes. We're paying for 10 episodes or whatever it is for them. Um, That really gives people a lot of freedom to, uh, to operate and to tell a long form story, which it turns out the public really has an appetite for. And we, we just, we just didn't know that because since the 1920s, advertisers have said, well, this sort of radio 22 minute format works. So let's just keep this format because it's not broken, right. you know, and then, um, and so then we, after a generation or two of that started to think, okay, well, that's what television is. That's what the human attention span is, you know, but we forgot that that was an assumption we made because of the way that our technology worked from a hundred years ago, but that's just mm-hmm. not the way that it works anymore. And so um, just expanding that, uh, expanding that, that attention span and expanding that storytelling is something that seems obvious and is pretty much how entertainment was in the 19th century. I mean, people would read these novels that would take them days or weeks to read. Um, and a long form television show is pretty much the same thing. It's, it's complex, it's detailed, uh, it's intricate. You can watch it more than once and get different things out of it every on every viewing. And if you, if you think about it, it's like, you know, a novel is someone's, you know, it's one person's, let's say it's several thousand hours of one person's attention. Um, a television show is probably several hundred thousand hours hmm. of different people's attention. That's, you know, the collected, the collected wisdom on a TV show has to be, you know, 10,000, you know, that has to be several thousand years of experience yeah. with all the people that work on the show and all the years that they've done it. So that's going to yield something that's really rich and really beautiful and, uh, you know, really rewards multiple viewings, which is not how television has been in the past. So. Hmm. No. Well, there is that art, there's that artistry and that humanity, you know, the, the human artistic craft that pours into it, the experience, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, seeing filmmakers go into a TV, you know what I mean? Like there, there's, there's so many levels of just pure craft on display in so many of these shows. And I, I'm curious from your perspective, you are someone who is heavily focused on the art, you know, heavily focused on you know, on the music and things like that. And one of the things that's really interesting, you've talked about it uh, quite a bit is you've worked with AI. So you, you worked um, in, in, it's fascinating. I was watching all of the news clips on it and all the, all the background <laughs> on it. And, and, you know, tell me a little bit about that experience. Is there, is there any part of you, I, I know that you mentioned how much you love doing it and that mm-hmm. it was a fascinating experience. Is there any part of you that feels any kind of fear surrounding AI coming into the forefront on how we, how we do some of this? Is there any trepidation in, in seeing that being utilized more and more? No. Hmm. Okay. No, not, no, no. All right. Next question. <laughs> Next question. Yeah. So, well, there's, you know, I've, there's, there are some reasons for that. And the, it's really easy. The reason that we think that AI wants to take over the world and take over, you know, our different, forms of art and squash our humanity and subjugate us is James because Cr- Cameron. of James Cameron. <laughs> that is why it's because, you know, so James Cameron, you have left many amazing legacies, but that is one that, uh, you know, you might wish you could take back. Um, but yeah, the reason that we're afraid of AI is because of sci-fi and James Cameron largely specifically, uh, because of the Terminator movies, but, uh, it's not. So first of all, I, I'm right now reading a great book called journey to the edge of reason, which is, the biography of Kurt Gödel, who um, is the the originator of the incompleteness theorem. So I won't bore your listeners t- 
to tears with like what all that means. But he was a mathematician in the 1940s and 50s and 60s who basically mathematically proved that computers could not think the way people could think. That is one of the implications, one of the many implications of his incompleteness theorem. And that doesn't mean that they can't do really amazing stuff. It just means that they can't really be creative in the sense that human beings are creative. Now, is that relevant to the arts? Not necessarily. Um, the way that, uh, that the way that an AI could disrupt music as we know it and, and probably will is that it can create music that's fine really, really quickly. And it already can do that. Like, and by fine, I mean, you know, watch Keeping Up with the Kardashians. I know nobody would admit to watching it, but it's, you know, it was on the air for 20 years. So someone was watching it. Um, and uh, I've watched more than my fair share with my <laughs> wife. So <laughs> See, there you go. There you yeah. Go. This is the, yeah, this is the, the, what I always say is, you know, they'll stop making it when you stop watching it. You know, it doesn't stay the on the air for that long. shaking his head yeah. at this point. Man, <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, uh, but, you know, the music in Keeping Up with the Kardashians is, I, I mean, it's not very good. It's not, it's not, and maybe the people who make it would argue with me, but it seems pretty sort of dashed off, you know, like they just kind of were like, all right, well, here's a drum beat. Here's a guitar sample. That's going to work. And AI can do that quality of music right now, and it can do it in great quantities, and it can do it to like direction in plain language. So you as a director could say, give me something that's epic and has violins in it and percussion, and it can make you something that is fine. It's not genius, but it's fine, and that's okay for a lot of situations. So if, let's say, AI captures 5% of the production music market, that's a billion-dollar market. So if it captures, so the incentive to make an AI that can do that is there. And mm -hmm. uh, which means that it probably will eventually be created. So 5% of that industry goes away. That means that 5% um, of the people that I work with are going to probably be unemployed or one of their big clients is going to disappear, which means that they're going to have to spend more time doing stuff other than the stuff I like to hire them for, like mixing playing instruments, you know, composing additional music or whatever, they're going to have to start doing other stuff, which means they're going to get worse at the thing that, um, that they were doing before, which mm. is, you know, music is a perishable skill. The more you do it, the better you get at it, the less you do it, the worse you get. And so, um, so it can affect like without being good at making music, it can really disrupt the music industry seriously because the music industry is an industry of people who are good at making music. And in order to stay good at making music, they need to be able to make it as much as possible. Right. So, so the biggest threat is just distracting people from focusing on developing the craft. The biggest threat is the threat that technology has uh, posed since really its inception, but um, more dramatically in the last hundred years, which is the threat of creeping mediocrity. Hmm. Oh. So yeah, just, you know, every advance in technology in the last couple of uh, decades has been um, cheaper, smaller, faster, and almost as good. Yeah. Which when speaking to Hollywood, historically, there's always the the producer that's opting for that. What's cheap and fast, and they're not focused on the craft. That's what's going to bring in the the deadline and make it cost, uh, you know, uh, affordable. Yeah, uh, I would amend that to say, like, cause I've never I've never worked with anyone that was trying to make something that wasn't good. That, that was trying to make something fast at the expense of it being good. I think everybody that I've ever worked with, and I. I I don't know if this is everyone in Hollywood, but I think most people, I think everyone in Hollywood is trying to make the best work that they can possibly make. You know, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, let me, you know, make some shit. 
Yeah. You know, let me spend my life and my hard-earned talents on making something bad. But like you, that happens. Like you end up on projects that aren't going to come out very well yeah. and you know it and you still have some weeks worth of work to do on them. Like that, that does happen, but nobody signs up for those willingly. Everybody tries to make good stuff. And I think the people who are the best try to make the best out of whatever situation that they're in. Like I was saying before that, you know, you just try to make the best work possible. And I think it's a myth and somewhat, I think it's sort of like a, it's kind of like a small talk myth to assume that like Hollywood producers are just trying to cut corners and make shit because hmm. they're not, you know, nobody wants it. I mean, just think about like what the psychology of a person who did that, like what that person would become over a very short period of time. Right. And, you know, I, I just, I, I think that you, you do, I know that there are some people who make commercials and don't think that it's really the highest form of, you know, their artistic expression and they feel bad about it, but they do it because it pays a lot of money. Yeah. You know, but they're also like commercials are also getting better. Yeah. Right. You know? I mean, I started a commercial fun. with Michelle Gondry, hmm. you know, he directed it. I mean, he's like a A-list director, Yeah. you know, that even, even that's, even that genre is improving and it wouldn't be improving if people didn't have an interest in making stuff better because right. commercials were working before. Right. You know, so why make them better? Yeah. I, yeah. To, to me, it was the, it was the thought process of, of for someone who, you know, again, isn't thinking like an artist because I, I know this is a fault that everybody does. You know, if you don't do something, you can tend to overlook its importance, you know? And so mm-hmm. like for, you know, you, you hear about this on film sets, you hear about the, in any kind of project, you know, the thing that someone's not passionate about sometimes gets overlooked, you know? And so when you're looking at a spreadsheet and going like, why are we spending so much on music when we can have AI, or we can download a stock track, you know, that'll communicate basically the same thing, you know, you start, there can be some negative connotations to that, but I, I was, I was curious if there was, if you had any inkling, which it doesn't sound like you do that, you know, AI could in mass disrupt like the music world, you know? No, there doesn't seem to be an appetite for crap. Like the appetite for shitty um, you just said I, I don't Kardashians was on for 20 seasons. That's so. what I'm saying. <laughs> this is like, this is, yeah. no, you're right. Like, so yeah. this is, but this is like the, the shift has occurred in the last like, 10 yeah, years. Sure. Like there seems to be more of an appetite for complex storytelling sure, right. than there is for this simplistic stuff. And I, I think, you know, Netflix is a, is a prime example of that. They have spent billions of dollars to shift the public to, to really like on a bet that people were going to enjoy yeah. this stuff. You right. know, on a, on a hunch that maybe there was a bigger appetite for this kind of thing than um, than anybody thought, and it turns out that they're right. You know, and I'm, I'm glad that they're right. But this is the kind of thing that big tech can do. Is you know, if you, we talk about the evils of tech. I mean, Netflix is essentially a tech company that has kind of saved the entertainment business. Hmm. I mean, it has come into Hollywood and said to all these creators, "You can have an unlimited amount of money to do whatever you want." Yeah, and let's see what happens. And, uh, and this was at a time when, you know, when Netflix really started taking over was a couple of years after I moved to Hollywood and it was dark, like everything was kind of going downhill, you know, like story, like everything was, yeah. Like I said, I mean, game of Thrones was about to happen and that was, you know, that was one of the biggest games in town. And if you think about like, I mean, how many great television shows were available 10 years ago? Not that many, how many are available today? More than you could watch. Yeah. Far you know, more like, than you, man. Yeah, yeah, more than you can. And I mean, great, like with A-list talent, 
A-list writers rooms, well, A-list direction. It's more than you could see. And some you haven't even heard of. Like I, yeah. I, I saw a show the other day and it was, it was, I forget what it even was, but this happens all the time. You see it loaded with A-list actors and A-list talent behind it. And you're going like, it's renewed for season three. Like when did season one and two drop? Like, this is crazy. Yeah. But this is what, you know, when you talk about the evils of technology, I mean, look around, like, look how much better the world is hmm. today than it was even 10 years ago. It is the, the landscape of entertainment is vastly improved. It's it's changed in a lot of ways, you know, which right. is can be scary because it isn't exactly the same as it used to be. I mean, there wasn't a lot of production in Georgia, you know, mm. 15 years ago, and now there's a ton of it. And, um, you know, uh, there was also L.A. sort of had a monopoly on film orchestras. And now that is distributed throughout the world. COVID has really yeah. kind of accelerated that process. Um, so you know, you can make an argument that that's bad and that that is like for individual people that is probably worse in the short term, but the end result that there is more and better entertainment available and more and better products and projects for people like you and me to work on is positive, even though, you know, it's not exactly the way we anticipated it when we were in film school or jazz college. Sure. Right. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, because I know you have a, you have an out here in a second. Um, I, I, just want to kind of ask you as far as, as far as COVID, because that's something that's kind of unavoidable conversation. It, you're, you're there in LA still currently, and uh, it's, it's affected a lot, you know, things have changed at the very least. Um, have you, has it drastically hurt uh, the music industry there? And, and if at the very least, how has it transformed the way that you're working on these projects? It hasn't, changed my life that much there was a period i mean if you'd asked me this question in january i would have told you like oh well i'm never gonna work again and i'm gonna probably <laughs> go apply for a job at the 7-eleven but then it all kind of came back in in march um guitar center i think i'd start with guitar center uh, but it all kind of came back in march um and and it came back pretty forcefully and there will be some long-term effects. A few studios have closed, uh, but not, not many, you know, they're all kind of hanging on. And a lot of musicians I know started working remotely, but we, we really were doing that before. I mean, yeah, for me, it became one of the things that was a bonus was some musicians who I wanted to hire, but, um, but, you know, I really needed them to be able to record themselves. They couldn't do that before COVID and now they all can't, there isn't, a single professional musician who can't record um, him or herself at this point. Sure. Um, uh, film music musician in LA. I mean, and uh, so that's something that's just expected now. And, um, you know, as far as, I mean, the, another positive is that I, I don't think I'm ever going to have to like get in my car, drive to uh, Hollywood, you know, check into some studio, wait half an hour to meet with an executive and talk about schedules. You know, that's all going to be done over Zoom because that's a waste of their time. It's a waste of everybody's time. And so we're not going to have those like those meetings anymore, which which is great. Um, And but, yeah, as far as like changing the way that. um, It it hasn't hasn't changed that much. It's been I I feel bad for people who are sort of like a couple cohorts beneath me. Um, I don't mean beneath, but behind like a couple of years younger than me or a couple of uh, age is also not really relevant, but a couple of years behind where I am in their careers, I guess. Yeah. An experience. Uh, because I was, yeah, an experience. I was, um, I was, uh, like when I first moved to Los Angeles, I was out at a party every night, you know, I mean, for like two years, I was like out meeting yeah. people every single night. And, um, 
And that is, you know, the reason that I have uh, the network that I have today, which is like, you know, as everybody will tell you is the most important thing. And so I feel bad for people who were probably like hitting their stride, building that network in 2020. And then this all fell apart because that, that, that does really affect you, you know? Um, But for, um, I guess I was a little bit more established at that time and, you know, it messed some stuff up, but uh, I think it's been more or less okay. Gotcha. I don't know. Did that answer the question? Yeah, no, absolutely. I was, I was and, curious. It may surprise you to learn. I don't actually get asked about this. I think this might be the first time on a podcast anyone's asked me about COVID, actually. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, no, I was I was I was curious about it. I was because I know a lot of what you do is is from home. I know I know a lot of a lot of work and technology has come a long way. So like the idea of especially working on TV, like you're not going and sitting with a massive orchestra, you know, <laughs> for every episode. You know, you're working. Well, my wife does people. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. She's a, so my wife, uh, her name's Allison Cantor and she works with Mark Isham, who is a, you know, great A-list Academy award-winning composer and all the stuff they do is with orchestras and not all of it, but most of it. And so, you know, they did once upon a time and once upon a time was like a chamber orchestra every week. Really? Wow. They're doing a a show now called the cleaning lady and that's going to be like a small ensemble, but yeah, everything Mark does. So yeah, Allison is, you know, I mean, I joke that I've, I've worked in every studio in LA. Um, and I, that's probably true, but Allison's worked in every studio in LA, like a hundred times, right. You know, like they that's all funny. know her name you know, she's, she's got a, they have a, they, they know what kind of snacks she likes. So that's funny. Um, that's yeah. Funny. Um, well, we're wrapping up here. I'm going to ask you just a couple quick rapid fire questions and then we'll close out right here at, at three. Um, if you were given the green light to work on a score for any property, um, any kind of, film or show uh, what would you love to work on uh like you mean like genre wise yeah it, genre if it's if you'd want to do something completely new or if you could step in and say like hey i want to work on a you know fill in the blank movie from this series i would love to step in and give my spin on it no i would want to do some like new sci-fi property mm. i think Interesting. that would be my you know sort of that would be my dream job or a star trek or a Star Trek property, or a Star Trek. Uh, yeah. What what is uh, what do you think is the best decade of film history? The the current one, really? Okay, yeah, interesting. Well, what who do you think is the most interesting filmmaker working right now? Oh man, that's a that, there's like I don't know. There's too many. I, it's it's hard. You know, maybe that was a bad answer because it's hard to judge. You know, the contemporary work because yeah. you don't know what's going to stick around. But. Um, I mean, I just saw Suicide Squad, which I think, like, Amazing. I thought that the DC universe was doomed because hmm. I mean, it was so many mediocre movies. And then uh, Tim Gunn, you know, no. give him some money and some superheroes. He, you know, it doesn't matter if it's DC or Marvel, he'll make a great movie. I think he's a fantastic storyteller. I think, you know, Christopher Nolan. I don't know what is next for him, but like some of the stuff he's already done is just really amazing, and will be around and studied in film school forever. Right. And. Uh, and so I guess I'm contradicting myself because these are all like from 10 and 20 years ago. But uh, I mean, just watching Jurassic Park again was a trip because, yeah. you know, I saw it as a kid and I never I didn't seeing it through the eyes of like an adult. And I guess a bit of a filmmaker, it's it's like just an accomplishment of a film, right. especially for the time. But even today, it looks amazing. Right. You know, uh, and uh, last question here. We have 60 seconds left. Uh, <laughs> what piece of advice would you give to an aspiring artist who's listening to this? Someone who's. Uh, I'll just leave it at artist, someone who's wanting to work their way up. Uh, what would be your number one piece of advice? Sure. Uh, you know, reach out to people who inspire you and who you think are good at their craft. The worst 
case scenario is that they'll ignore you, but probably they won't. Um, And always do the best job you can at whatever job you have. So if you are currently a bartender and you really want to be an actor or you're currently a bartender and you really want to be a screenwriter, be an awesome bartender when you're at the bar, Mm. be an awesome waiter when you're at the, um, when you're at the restaurant. And I'll, I'll close just by telling you, I ended up uh, working. My first real job in entertainment was on the Olympics. And I got that job because I was a waiter at this guy's wedding. And I caught his attention for being a decent waiter and he hired me as an intern. And then, you know, I worked my way up. So had I been like, you know, whatever, I'm too good for this, that, that, then I would still probably be working at that restaurant. Yeah. I have a, I have a friend who says the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. I don't believe that, but people Hmm. think that. So Hmm. like, just that, like the people like to think that they can look at how you're doing something and extrapolate some big part about your personality. So the fact that people believe that is as important as whether or not it was true. Right. You know, like, so if, if, if I see, you know, if someone believes that about you and they see you doing something well, they're going to assume that you do something else. Well, they might be wrong, but at least they'll give you a shot. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for jumping on with me and having this conversation. I really do appreciate it. And, uh, my pleasure. Look, look forward to seeing on what you uh, work on in the future. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thanks for the great questions. And thanks for indulging me. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Film School Podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, don't forget to leave a five-star review and hit subscribe so you won't miss a single episode.